Most of you know Warren um, pretty well if you've been around the life of our church for very long. Warren is the BSM director at TCU. Um, his students mean a lot to our church. His ministry means a lot to our church, but more than that, his family does. We love the Etheridges. Um, they've been especially important to my family and I as we um, transition here to the church. He kind of started at TCU about two weeks before I did, so he didn't have to be the new guy very long, and I think that's still me. So uh, anyways, we love the Etheridges. We love Warren. Warren, we're happy to have you here. So without further ado, we all give it up for Warren. Hey, thank you. Good morning. Yeah, Jason's family, or Jason himself was the first minister that I was like, I've been here longer than you. I get to pay for your coffee this week. And I just need you to know that's a great moment for me, okay? So I'd been here about a month longer than he had. And so um, this, it's kind of crazy to think about, but this is the start of our fourth year at TCU. And so we're really excited to be here. Um, but man, thank you guys for having me this morning. Man, thanks for our worship team. I, my, my wife and I are sitting right in front of the horn section. Uh, and there's nothing that makes you want to draw your sword and take the hill faster than a bunch of horns right in your face, okay? Uh, and so, like, I'm already, like, sweating through my shirt and different stuff like that just because of right there, okay? So, um, like I said, I'm the BSM director at TCU right here across the street where we've got students, about 11,000 students. And as far as we can tell, about 92%, 93%, somewhere in there, those students are not involved in a church or ministry whatsoever. And so, um, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so, if you guys would continue to pray for us and the ministry that we do there across the street, man, we'd appreciate that. We've had a busy semester so far. The, the fall, kind of the August, September is kind of a crazy couple of months for me. I think this is the second, I'm sorry, I'm spitting into the mic a little bit too much. I think this is the second week since the first of August that I'm here on a Sunday morning. Um, we have kind of a, a rolling different number of things that happen on Sunday mornings, and we are just so grateful um, to be back with you this morning after what seems like a really long time. So last week we were at Fall Retreat, the week before that we had some other things, so it just, it's really good to be with you um, this morning. I'm going to adjust this slightly a little bit more, and there we go, okay? So with that being said, we saw four students come to know Christ in the month of September across this street, and so there's, there's a lot of exciting things happening at TCU and in the BSM, a lot of things happening in your college students. Like I, I see like Danny, our friend Danny that we commissioned and sent out to work at the BSM at Rice is back with us this morning. She didn't hear who was speaking, and so she showed up on the wrong Sunday, but that's fine. Uh, we'll pray for her and send her back to Houston. Um, but uh, we have a lot of different exciting things going on, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we talk through uh, the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke 13 um, this morning. But before we jump into that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to hit the ground running, okay? So let me pray for us. God, I am so grateful that you would have us here this morning. Lord, as, as we look at what you were speaking to the crowds in response to their, their questions, God, I pray that you would speak to us as well. I also pray that we wouldn't just see this um, and hear from you as individuals, but we would also see this as, as a community, how to respond to the, the things that you called out. Um, so, Lord, I pray for us here today that you would help us to hear what you say, that our hearts and ears would be in a place that we are ready to listen to you well and not just listen but apply. God, I pray for myself that I wouldn't say anything more or less than what you've asked. And we just pray all these things in your name. Amen. So a few weeks ago when Jeremiah asked me to fill in, I was really excited because I was like, I've got a lesson for almost every parable. Like just kind of in teaching college students, it happens. I've got kind of a, a repertoire of different things I can talk on and different outlines already made. But then he was like, yeah, we're looking at Luke 13, 1 through 9, the, the parable of the bearing fig or bearing fruit. And I was like, oh, homeboy does not have an outline for that. Man, that is 
a rough one. And you can kind of tell why. We're going to read here in a second. But unlike a lot of the parables that kind of set up and end with kind of a, ooh, that end with a direction or end with hope, the parable of the barren fig does not. It's more of conviction. It's kind of lasting. So, like, I love Luke 15, where in response to uh, the Pharisees kind of asking about, um, man, why does your teacher sit with the sinners? Why does he eat with people that are unclean? Jesus responds with this trilogy of parables. It's all about valuing the least of these, right? You've got the, the lost coin, like a lady lost a coin, and she turns over her whole house to find it. Or the par- right after that's the parable of the lost sheep, where the the person that represents Jesus or symbolic of Jesus leaves the 99 in order to find the one because yes these 99 are valuable but so is the one right or then it kind of tops off at the end of Luke 15 which you've got the parable of the prodigal son right and we all kind of know that one even though the son had asked for his inheritance he'd been given everything that he needed the father still welcomed his back his identity had not changed no matter what he had gone through like all these things that are valuing the parable that are all hope for each of us. But then, right before all that in Luke 13, you've got the parable of the barren fig, okay? And so we are going to hit the ground run. We're going to talk a little bit, just so my type A personality people that take notes, this is kind of our, our roadmap for today, okay? We're going to talk a little bit about verse 1 through 5 and the setup and the context of what the, the people around Jesus were asking of him. Then we're going to transition into 6 through 9, the actual parable itself. And then what does it look like to apply the things that Jesus is asking of us, okay? So if we were to put a title on this sermon, okay, it would be, what does fruit look like? Like, what does it look like to be fruitful disciples of Jesus? And not only that, what's stopping us from having fruit in our lives? So unlike a lot of some of the, the things that I've taught in the past, this is, this is all, some of it, the end of it's really pragmatic. Like, how do we take these things, how do we apply them into our everyday lives, okay? So we're going to turn to Luke 13, 1 through 5, and we're going to jump right in. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, excuse me, let me say that again. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, something that you need to understand as Jesus kind of answers these, these people that were um, asking him these questions. What the people, uh, let's say the, some present at that very time, okay, what they really wanted to hear from Jesus, their hopeful Messiah, this person that they were looking to to free them from the oppression of Rome, they were really hoping for a political statement, okay? So they bring up a very political topic, okay? Jesus, maybe you heard about this guy, Pilate. He's the kind of the governor for this area. Um, Jesus, did you hear about when he murdered these people who were making sacrifices? Like, he didn't just murder some Jews. He murdered Jews in the middle of their sacrifices. Their blood was mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. So they're like elevating the issue, right? What they were really hoping for was that Jesus would respond in what they hoped the Messiah would, which would be, I'm going to use this phrase for the second time today, and maybe if we're lucky, a third, okay? But he wanted them to pull, draw his sword. They wanted to say, you know, how dare Pilate, how dare Rome, this is the moment. This is the moment we're going to overthrow. That's what they were hoping for, okay? But instead, Jesus answers in a different way that they weren't quite expecting, Okay? So instead, if it, like, and let's not diminish the things that had happened with these killed Galileans. Like, this was a severe punishment. I mean, it's not out of question for Pilate and Rome. Rome 
continually known as someone, like, they're not known as people who are gentle and sweet to the nations that they capture, okay? Like 80s, 60s-ish, uh, when 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written, it's documented from people outside of the Christian faith that uh, Emperor Nero, who was just kind of a really terrible Roman emperor, um, was known to elevate and catch Jews, people of the new Christian faith, like he was catching them and stringing them up on poles and burning them alive at night to light the streets. Rome, not known for their sweetness, okay? They're not like people that gave out chocolate to the people they killed and captured, okay? Um, So it wasn't out of question for Pilate and Rome to be doing this, but they were elevating the situation so where Jesus responded with a political thing. But the question that they're asking is really similar to what is asked of Jesus in John 9, 2 in regards to a blind man who Jesus would um, later heal and restore his sight. If you'll remember, in that situation, um, Jesus answered, like the the disciples, the people that are with him, asked, who sinned, the man or his parents, that he would be blind? And Jesus' response, both there in this situation in Luke 13, but then also in John 9, is to devalue, like to, to minimize this cause and effect relationship between sin and our physical condition, and more emphasize what is happening between the relationship between God and man, okay? And so we'll, we'll hear, let's look at that in, right, real fast right here. Jesus says it isn't about the severity of their sin um, in that first two verses, but then goes, and goes, goes ahead and gives them another example, okay? And you'll see that in verse 3. No, I tell you, or excuse me, verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So in the first example that they gave him, they were Gentiles. It was Roman. The Roman, it was a political, right? Romans killed Gentiles. Jesus, is this the time? Do we need to throw them out? In Jesus' example, it's a natural occurrence. This tower fell. It killed people. But in both situations, the question is the same. Do you think that they were worse sinners? Um, Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So this is what Jesus just did. He took what these people intended as a horizontal conversation where they were comparing their sin or their goodness, their righteousness, however word you want to put that, to the people side to side of them. And then all of a sudden Jesus took it and made it a vertical conversation where it's not comparison to the people next to them, but it's comparison to who God is. Okay? Because at the base of their question, at the base of their example, was judgment. Was Pilate right in pronouncing judgment in this way? And Jesus' response is another one of judgment, but not about what they were asking about. What is God's response to your imperfection? Okay? Verse 5, you can read that one more time. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What was a horizontal conversation just became a vertical conversation for everybody. Um, So with the idea of judgment, he now transitions into the parable that we look at and are hanging out in today, okay? So this is verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year and Uh, Let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to be all over Scripture in a little bit. But before we move on from there, I want to make a few observations about this parable, okay? First and foremost, 
Three years is plenty of time for a fig to produce fruit, okay? Um, This is not a situation where, like, we've got a peach tree or an apple tree, and it takes years to see an orchard come to fruition and to enjoy, reap the benefits or harvest the fruit from that kind of thing. Like, a fig tree should be producing figs at three years old. It's also perfectly, perfectly reasonable that if a fig is not producing fruit as it should be, it should be removed, okay? The vine dresser, another observation, the vine dresser intervenes and acts for grace and more time for the fig, and then the next one goes along with it. The vine dresser also gives it more of what it needs, right? It digs around the root to provide oxygen in the soil and puts on manure to supply more nutrients the plant needs. If the plant doesn't produce fruit, it won't be because it didn't have what it needs, okay? Now, the master, like the the owner of this vineyard, he is perfectly within his rights to say, this is not producing fruit. We need to get it out of here. Like, we need to move. But the vine dresser steps in and asks for a year of grace, a period of grace. And so what he was communicating to the crowd is like, we should be seeing the fruit as a people of what you say you believe in. So for the Jews, like, where is the fruit of our work? The same can be asked of us as the church, okay, as the bride of Christ. Where is the fruit of our life, okay? Now, he took their conversation about whether or not the people killed it, deserved it, and made it about the lack of visible fruit in their life. Um, And we have to kind of watch out for a couple of ditches, okay? Sometimes we read this with an individualistic Western lens where we say, hey, this is my fruit. How do I produce my fruit? Whereas Jesus was speaking to a whole people group, okay? He was addressing them both personally, but then also as a people. And so today, like, we're going to do the same things, okay? So we're going to talk about, like, where, what are, why are we lacking fruit in our own personal lives? And then as a people, man, what are we lacking as followers of the Lord? Like, what are the fruits that we are missing? Because people groups are made up of individuals. And so if we see the change in the individual, we will likely see it in the people as well, okay? So the first question we need to ask, what is stopping our fruit. Okay. Now this is the question for all of us. And there's, I'm going to give a couple of different examples of what it could be. And we're going to go from there. Okay. Now verse five, he says it twice in both in verse three and verse five, repent, right? Repent. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all, you will all likely likewise perish. Um, so maybe some of us have unrepented sin in our lives. And I know when I say that my first reaction, if I was you, if I was sitting is like, well, I mean, I, there's some things that I wrestle with, but there's not really things I, I don't hold on. Like, I don't have unrepented sin in my life. I just have things that burden me down or, or like, they, they weigh heavily on me or I don't live in it. I struggle with it, like those different things. Until this week I heard uh, this quote. Um, well, let me say this first. One of the ways I talk about this with my college students is sometimes sin is a word that we use a lot in church context, but outside of people that have grown up um, going to a church or going to a place that worship the Lord, sin is a mysterious word that means a bunch of different things like, oh, bad things or morally questionable things, question mark, you know, different things like that. And right now in a culture that shifts on what's good and what's bad, those kind of definitions can be confusing. And so um, for college students, I use the term like in, in archery, for those of you that are archers, I am not, okay, so don't ask me, um, to demonstrate my uh, skill with a bow. Uh, someone will get hurt. Um, but for archers, anytime that you don't hit the middle, anytime you don't hit the bullseye, it's referred to as a sin, okay? So it's missing that mark of perfection. And when we look at the Bible, anytime that we sin, we're missing God's mark of perfection according to his standard. And he is the standard, right? As a perfect God, 
over all things. We're missing the mark of perfection. But I heard it said this way, and I really appreciated the way it made me think about it. Um, Ignatius of Loyola, who's the founder of the Jesuit order, um, is quoted as saying, sin, for his definition of sin, is an unwillingness to trust that, uh, excuse me, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Now, don't, don't, don't freak out on me, okay? Happiness is not the, like the fleeting emotion thing, but it's a mistrust of God who wants what's best for me, okay? That's what he's trying to say there in that passage. And if you think about that, like that's what happens in Genesis 3, is it not? You've got God's standard perfection. Um, he asks Adam and Eve to do a, a, a certain thing, but then Satan, the serpent, comes into the picture and says, is that really what God said? Like what God really wants is a change. Like that's not what God really wants. So he wants us to, he doesn't really want you to be happy in this way, right? It's a mistrust of what God really wants for us. And we do this all the time. Like we say, oh, this is an arbitrary rule about sexual identity. This is an arbitrary rule about lying. This is an arbitrary rule about these things. And what we do is we lower God's bar to something that we can maintain grip and maybe do pull-ups on or, or something to make us look impressive, right? It's the lowering of God's standard. That's what all sin is, is a mistrust, uh, a mistrust of God and, and saying that he doesn't want my deepest happiness. Because reality is all those different boundaries that God makes for us is how we can line up with his created order, which is how we enjoy the life that God created best. And there's statistics about that. There's a lot of data about that. But that's not where we're hanging out today. Maybe if that definition helps you better to understand, man, maybe there's something I don't fully trust God in. As an individual, maybe it's finances or safety. um, Or I'm trying to think of some different things, uh, even in my own personal life. Um, Maybe it's where, like finances, safety, um, how our kids are going to be raised, different things like that. But then as a people group on this side, man, we don't trust God with our place and culture. Or, man, if we don't speak to this, we're not going to be heard. Do we trust God in those things? Do we trust that God wants our our greatest, deepest happiness? Not the flimsy, um, moving and shifting happiness, but the deepest. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So two questions. Where do you not trust God and where do we not trust God as a people? Okay. But not only could it be unrepented sin, man, we need to look at where our roots are planted. That, that passage in Jeremiah talks about um, the tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Where are our, our excuse me, where are our roots planted? Because I think we all have bitten into an apple that looked really good on the outside but was rotten in the inside. Okay, or maybe you haven't. Maybe that's just me. I've also been to enough youth ministry things where I was blindfolded and thought I was biting into an apple and it was an onion. Okay, and that stuff doesn't go away with one toothbrushing. Okay, um, it takes a long time. So where are our, our roots planted? Psalms one three says that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruits in its season and its leaf does not weather. weather yeah, wither. In all that he does, he. Now, on the opposite end of that, Jeremiah, we just quoted Jeremiah earlier, a little bit earlier in his book in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. For they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
The reality is, some of us don't have fruit in our lives because we have put our roots in something that does not sustain us. To quote Jeremiah, we have, we have dug out our, we have seen the, the fountain of living water that never ceases, it never runs dry, it can give us everything that we need, but it's, it seems too unattainable. And so we moved over and we have dug out our own cistern, our own well, and put our roots in that, realizing that it will run dry or it is empty. And so all of a sudden we don't understand why our fruits don't yield anything. They don't look like anything that the Bible talks about. And it's because we haven't used the Bible. We haven't taken our roots and put them in things that are ongoing. and haven't put them in things that are godly. And instead our fruit falls short. It doesn't sustain us. And so those roots can be placed in a lot of different things. Um, just a, a few of them that I'm going to call out that are, that are some of my own that I have to like be nervous or be worrisome about or be aware of. I mean, sometimes I'll put my roots, and this is kind of a, maybe a college students, this kind of connects with us maybe a little bit better. I just lumped myself in with college students like I am one. Um, but man, some of us put our time and attention in social media. Man, we let that define how we're doing. Some of us put our time and roots into, um, man, how we're doing in our job. Man, how we're doing at life, how our family behaves, how our, uh, man, how do we feel? Man, some of us put our roots into our feelings, which I don't want to get into the metaphor of putting roots back into the tree, but it just doesn't work out good, okay? It just doesn't. Um, man, and, and that's, all those things are weird roller coasters to, to hit your um, satisfy, satisfying factory factor in, okay? It'll take you all over the map. But instead, man, do we put them in things that are eternal, are we like uh, what Psalm says? That are we like trees planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither? Because the reality is we can look at where we spend our time and our money and those are the things that we prioritize and those are the things that are shaping us the most. We are all being discipled and shaped by something. And if we look where we spend the most time, we'll likely find out by what. Some of us are shaped by sports. The Cowboys play at 12. Don't worry, we're gonna get out before then. Uh, not, that, not that that's worth watching. Zing, sorry. Um, not that that's worth watching right now, too much, right? Um, some of us are shaped by how our kids are doing. All those things, all those things come up lacking, okay? But then there's passages like Matthew 7. I told you we're jumping around a lot today. Matthew 7, verse 18 and 19. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. This is Jesus talking to his disciples as a part of the Sermon on the Mount. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. My fear as we have this conversation about fruit, as we kind of wrap up here in the next five to six minutes, my fear is that as we talk about fruit, we will fall into the ditch of maintaining the image of our fruit and have no, like, will be good fruits on the outside that are rotten on the inside. I think specifically of Matthew, in, in Matthew 5, the end of Matthew 5, Jesus is talking to a crowd of people, and he says, Woe to you if, if your righteousness does not um, surpass that of the Pharisees and the, the religious elite of our day, because you will not get into the kingdom of heaven, which is a scary verse. But if you look at what he says about the Pharisees and the religious elite in Matthew 23, um, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. This is Matthew 23, 25 through 28. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be made clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within, oop, within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Now, I don't think we need to talk about what it means to be a whitewashed tomb that's really pretty on the inside and filled with death and destruction on the inside, but I'm always concerned that that's what our fruit looks like as well. Like We are really pretty on the outside, but man, on the inside, there's not much to show. It's mushy. It's, it's been, it's not good anymore, okay? I, I think the perfect example when he's talking about clean cups, my daughter, two and a half year old, her name's Rin. She runs around here quite a bit. Um, man, we, we have a problem. Uh, my daughter is addicted to chocolate milk, and it's a bad, it's a bad situation, okay? Like, we're looking into the sinners. We're looking into things that we can walk that back a little bit. Um, but my daughter, one of the worst things about chocolate milk, I wash the dishes in our house. And every once in a while, for those of you that have had kids or have kids, you know that sometimes those cups go missing. And when it was filled with chocolate milk, it's not... We're not going to talk about it on stage, but it emokes some emotions and some physical responses when you open that lid that are not wholesome, okay? And so, like, I think I'm worried that what Jesus is talking about for the Pharisees, sometimes we look the same. That instead of cleaning the inside of the cup so that we can put something clean on the inside, we have just covered the outside and pretended like we don't have moldy chocolate milk in the middle, okay? And if that's the best physical explanation I can give to you, then my job here is complete, okay? Um, but so many of us do the same thing. Some of us haven't grown. We, ha- we have these dirty cups. And my fear for us, and I've said that several times because I do have a lot of fears about the fruit that we produce as a people of God. My fear for us, to quote Peter Scazzaro in Emotional Healthy Spirituality, that some of us have been following the Lord for 20 years. And instead of having the fruit of a person that's a 20-year-old Christian, we have the fruit of someone who has been a one-year-old Christian 20 times. Instead of having the fruit of someone that has been following the Lord for 20 years and maturing, we have the fruit of someone that has followed the Lord one year old for 20 times. We're still doing the same things we did when we started. And it's because our roots are not in the right thing. What our root for our actions is determines the fruit it produces. It's the difference in taking out the trash for fear of punishment versus taking out the trash out of an overflow of love and affection. Growing up, one of my roles um, at my family, is this is probably the best. I had several, but this is probably the best one to illustrate it. Um, I used to take out the trash uh, as a part of some of my kind of weekly, daily, slash all the every hour chore um, that we had, right? And so I'd take the trash out because that's what was expected to me. And if I didn't, I would get some form of punishment, depending on what age I was at the time, okay? Um, and I did that out of a fear of punishment. But now I'm married. I've been married for seven years. Sarah puts up with a lot of different things. You can tell I'm a lot as a person. Um, One of my roles is to clean the dishes and take out the trash. But I don't take out the trash for fear of punishment. I take out the trash out of devotion for my wife, who does a lot of stuff in our kitchen. That's one of her kind of domains in our house. And she does an amazing job doing all the things that people do in kitchens. Um, But one of the things out of devotion for my wife, I take out the trash. And you'll see the juxtaposition between the two different things. On the outward sign, they are both the same thing, taking out the trash but it's for two separate reasons. If we do it out of a fear of punishment or fear of things, it will lead to shame. It will lead to worry, anxiety, stress, all these different things where if it's out of devotion, man, it is something that we look forward to doing. And I'm a better trash taker outer now than I was when we started getting married, right? Because I did it out of devotion. And so that leads into our last section, okay, which is how do we grow in our devotion so that our fruit looks more like Jesus. And I'm just going to really quickly teach you what I teach our students um, all the time. And we take this thing called the navigator's wheel. And if you want to throw that up on the screen, the, the blank one, that would be great. Um, we've got this thing called the navigator's wheel. Sorry, it's not on my screens here, so I was like waiting for it. We've got this thing called the navigator's wheel. And at the center of that wheel is Jesus. I stole this from Dawson Trotman and the navigators. We use it a lot. But at the center is Jesus. Jesus is the Lord over our life, meaning there is no place that we say no Lord. For one, that's, a, that's two different things. That's kind of a, a, just a, a, a paradox. You can't say 
Lord and no in the same sentence. Uh, because if someone is Lord over your life, you say yes to whatever they have asked you. And so Jesus at the center of our life, dictating how we spend our time, our relationships, our energy. Um, and then we've got four different spokes. We've got two that run vertical and then two that run horizontal. And so look at the two vertical ones first. One of them, if you'll go to the next slide, is prayer. Man, do we have a relationship with the Lord where we are speaking to the Lord? And if you'll go to the next slide as well, The other one is the Bible, okay? So vertical corresponds to our relationship with God. Are we listening to what God is saying through his word, but then also speaking to the Lord about the things that are happening in our life? I think I have actually preached a sermon on prayer here before, so if you need to look that up, you can. Um, man, are we speaking to God as Exodus talks about, was as Moses spoke to God as a friend to a friend? Um, and then for so many of us, we're like, man, God is not speaking in my life. I haven't heard from the Lord. The reality is God's already spoken. It's in his word. We just haven't seen it because we're not, in it. Okay, again, what are our roots planted in? So we've got those two vertical spokes, and then if you'll click two slides over the two horizontal spokes, if the vertical is how we correspond with the Lord and our relationship and standing with him, the horizontal spokes are how we do life with people next to us, okay? One of those being the church. Man, how do we do life with other believers? One of the things I tell my students every year um, is if the Son of Man came not to serve, or not, yeah, not to be served, but to serve, we should probably be serving the church. Okay, don't come with a bib, uh, a bib and an apron. They're both the a same type of cloth. One is fastened around the waist. One is uh, fastened around the neck. One communicates, I need to be fed because I cannot feed myself. The other says, I'm here to serve and should reflect our maturity level. Okay, so a lot of times I'm afraid to use that analogy from earlier. I'm afraid we've got a lot of 20-year-old Christians that are wearing bibs instead of aprons when God has asked us to wear aprons because his example was one of service, right? And so how do we do life in the church? How do we do life with the, the rest of the body? But then the other horizontal spoke is how do we do life with people outside the body? How do we um, share our faith? How do we share what the most important things in our life are? And so those are the kind of the four things. But guys, if we follow these four things, if we grow in each one of these aspects, and you'll notice that each one of these is an umbrella for a lot of different things that we talk about in the life of a Christian. If we follow these things, we will find ourselves being drawn closer and closer to the Lord. And as we get closer to the Lord, the light that of who he is illuminates the shadows in who we are. It is impossible. No, I'm going to say this. It's not my notes, which is always scary, but I'm going to say it. It is impossible to grow in your relationship with God and not understand more the darkness of your heart and what God has saved you from. Those things go together. And so if we have not felt conviction in our own lives about how, how some of the areas where we are not doing as well as we should, maybe it's because we have not moved closer to Jesus in a long time. Okay, And that should concern us and we should pray about that. But when we grow in these things, we'll find that we are shaped more in Christ's image and change can take place internally, meaning that the external or the fruit can also change. So the whole conversation, what does fruit in our lives look like, hinge on this. Man, how close are we to God? Are we falling into the ditch of like producing fruit that doesn't mean anything? Or are we seeing these things shaped by who Jesus is as we draw closer to him? And I see this because I'm a college minister, I get to see this all the time. So even in the month of September, like we've got um, students who have grown in their relationship with the Lord to, to a point where, man, a, a student that um, didn't know the people in her major was like, man, I want to throw family dinners because I don't know these people. And I should. If, they're, if they are made in God's image, that means they have amazing worth. Even, excuse me, I've got the hiccups. Even if they don't believe in the God of whose image they are made in, they have the fingerprints of God, meaning they have value. 
okay? No matter socioeconomic status, ethnicity, um, belief system, major, whatever, they have value because they are made in the image of God, and so I want to know them. We had a student that two years ago um, came and started a relationship with Christ on her first week of school. This year, lead someone else to start a relationship with Christ on their first week of school, two years after she did. Uh, We've got a a student that looked around and said, um, man, who are the people I work with? How can I love them better? How can I get to know them because they're made in God's image? And then how can I share what's the most important thing in my life with them? One of the things we teach, and I'm kind of flying through this, one of the things we teach our students, um, it's kind of silly, but man, do you fly the Jesus flag in your life? Meaning, um, does everyone know where your allegiance is? Something you'll know about a flag, it is not a weapon of mass destruction. It is not to be forced down people's throats because when we force things down people's throats, they choke and die. And that's not the reality of what we want, right? So instead, they should indicate whose allegiance they belong to. And as we as Christians, if people around us can't tell that there is something different about us, then maybe we are flying a flag that looks more like the world than the Jesus of the Bible. And so we have students that sit down um, with their grandfathers uh, on Easter Sunday and say, why do we only go to the grandfathers, their grandparents, um, and say, why do we not go to church except on Christmas and Easter? And in their explanation, they got to share the gospel and led their grandparents to accept Christ for the first time. Um, We've got students who are looking around and saying, man, I I used to be inward focused, but I now realize like God has created me to be verbal and to be outward. And so they they designed outreaches on our campus where they're giving out snacks um, and they are offering to pray for students. This week, we've got a prayer tent that starts Tuesday at noon and runs Thursday to midnight. And we are there every hour of the day and night to either um, help students pray for the world or have their world prayed for. And those things are manned by students that, that understand and know Uh, Man, God has created me for something different um, to interact with that. And so as we look at these things and we ask the question, how do I not be a barren fig? We need to ask three questions and then I'll I'll pray for us. Guys, we must assess what do I need to grow in? As you look at this, man, what I do for students, what I think would be really helpful for us, if you assess, man, what is one area that I'm weak in? What do I need to grow in? Is it the how I do life with people in the church, outside the church? Is it people, how I do my prayer life? How, how do I read the word? What are we missing? So assess what do you need to grow in? We need to assess what are our roots in? Where are we drawing from? Is it the world or is it, is it the Lord? And then last but not least, where are the areas where I do not trust God fully, where I have not fully let go of something in my life? And so as we talk through those things, as we, as we talk about um, what does it mean to, to bear fruit that is indicative of roots placed in the Lord, um, Guys, the, God has given us mercy. Some of us, uh, I can talk for myself on this. Like there are seasons in my life where I was not a fruit producer. I was not a good reflection of who Christ made me to be. Um, but just like in, in the parable, um, the vine dresser steps in. He supplies manure. He supplies nutrients. He supplies oxygen. He supplies what we need to be fruitful. And so let it not be said of us that, that we were not fruitful when it comes time. Okay. So let me pray for us um, as the band comes back up and we'll continue on this morning. God, Lord, thank you for the parable of the fig tree. Thank you for being gracious with us. Thanks for being loving. God, I I ask um, that you would help us to see what do we need to grow in, Um, that you would help us to see what our roots are placed in, that you would help us to understand where do we not trust you completely. I know for my life that's an ongoing question that I'm seeking the answer to. And I'm grateful for how patient you are with me in the places where you say, hey, did you realize that you haven't trusted me in this? 
I got, God, I pray that we'd all pray the bold prayer this week of help me to see what I don't know. Reveal that to me. Lord, I pray that we would have relationships with people inside the church, that we'd be good servants of your body. I also pray that we would be um, good servants to the people around us, that we'd be good neighbors, that we would host well, that we'd look up and at the end of our life, that it would be said that we had friends that believed differently than us so we could interact and, and do life alongside of them. God, I'm grateful for this time where we come together. I pray that we would be left, that we would leave different because of our interaction with you and your word this morning. We just pray all these things in your name. Amen.